When I was 12 or so, I had this nasty habit of uh, quietly going to one of my parents' wallets and just having a look-see, you know, just seeing what was there, what we were working with, and then trying to figure out what could I take that they wouldn't notice, you know, has been taken. So, you know, if there's a little bit of change in there, this might have even been before the loony. That's, this is crazy, right? Uh, just if there's a lot of quarters, you know, maybe they're not going to know how many quarters are in there. It takes some. If there's really just some rows of 20s, back when people use cash, right? This is rows of 20s. They probably wouldn't miss one of those, right? Horrible thing to do. But I, I dipped frequently into my parents' wallets at this, you know, stage of my life. Some could say I still do, but that, you know, it's their blessing to have me as a child and want to support in every way they can. So, you know, no, no. I think that tap dried up a while back. But uh, one day my friend called me up and said, my brother can drive us to the movies. Do you want to come to the movies? And so I asked my parents if I could go to the movies. And they said, well, how are you going to pay for it? And I said, I wasn't thinking. I have my own money. And they, they know their son well. They're like, you have money? And because uh, they knew like when I got you know, money at Christmas and my birthday, I would immediately ride my bike to the corner store and that money would be gone. And so how would I have any money? And I said, I have my own. And then they asked where I got it from. And then I was, uh, you know, that I, it, was, it was all over. It was all over. I, uh, I took it from you, sorry. I didn't get to go to the movies that day. Let me just review a little bit where we've been and now where we're going. Just look back a couple weeks. Because we bear the image of God, it sets him against the unjust taking of human life and murder. And as the holiness of God sets him against the impurity of idolatry, so too the justice of God sets him against the robbery of theft. I'm just going to read the Eighth Commandment to you. It's very simple. It comes out of Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. You shall not steal. And if you're catching the pattern here, if you've been here the last few weeks, you know, sometimes we said out of the gates, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. And a number of us, as we hear that read, we're like, I'm okay, I think I'm good. And then we get into it a bit and we're like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm not good at all. And so in the same way, I think we're dealing with that situation yet again. Simply to define stealing, we just know it's this, taking something that doesn't belong to you. Laying your hands unjustly on what is another's. Jerry Bridges observed that people take one of three basic attitudes towards possessions. As I show you these, just consider in your heart, which one am I? Here's the first basic attitude that some people take towards possessions. What's yours is mine, I'll take it. That's the attitude of the thief. The second attitude that some people have is what's mine is mine, I'll keep it. This is probably the most prevalent attitude. This is the attitude of most people since we are selfish by nature. And the third attitude that some people take towards possessions is what's mine is God's. I'll share it. That right there is a godly view of possessions. Christians are called to live this way. 
It's a mark of the Christian life. What's mine is God's. I'll share it. So with that in mind, and this eighth commandment having just been read, you shall not steal. Here's the outline this morning. Here's where we're going to go. If you like roadmaps, if you're type A, if you want to evenly space these on the back of your bulletin, let's do this. Here we go. First, the law shows us we're thieves. Second, the reality is we're stewards. And third, the gospel makes us generous. So first, the law shows us we're thieves. We're going to put up a, a, a portrait here, a, a painting by Norman Rockwell. I, I have a love-hate relationship with Norman Rockwell. Um, what's so wonderful about Norman Rockwell is he's one of those great artists that you just, you just glance at his work and you know instantly, oh, that's, that's a Norman Rockwell painting, right? He's got that style, like kind of 1950s, 40s. What are we talking about here? I don't know. Long before my time. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Right? Just, there's a certain era that's captured, and it's, it's this kind of wonderful era, right? Very distinct, very unique. I love that about Norman Rockwell. I think he captures that beautifully. My hate, the hate side of it for me is this. The dentist I went to as a kid had a Norman Rockwell painting in the waiting room. So while I waited to go to the dentist and experience pain in my mouth, I would always associate that with this really cool Norman Rockwell painting. But do you see what's going on here? It just looks like a lovely little, oh, there's a woman who's gone to the butcher. Oh, that's neat, right? A moment in time. But if you, if you look a little bit closely, you notice a couple things going on. The butcher's pressing down on the scale to raise the price. Meanwhile, the customer is pushing up on the scale to lower the price. And what's so fascinating and funny is that neither has a clue what the other is doing. And they're both quite pleased with themselves, especially her, if we look closely enough. She seems most satisfied. Now, if you were to approach one of these two individuals later on, not during the scale scenario, but at any other time, and you were to, if you were to ask, do you see yourself as a thief? What do you think they'd say? What? No, absolutely not. Of course not. Because they wouldn't, I mean, just judge profiling here. I don't think, you know, they're going to rob any place or I don't think they're going to uh, steal a car. In fact, if she knows how to hotwire a car, I'm more impressed than anything. Like, I just don't think either of them are doing e either of those things. It's unlikely that either of them will rob a bank and all that kind of stuff. But I don't think it takes much convincing for us to realize that we're all thieves. They are and we are. Some on a large scale... Some on a smaller scale, but as we'll see when we're done here this morning, Martin Luther was right when he said, if we look at mankind in all its conditions, it is nothing but a vast, wide stable full of great thieves. This word, when it talks about you shall not steal, this word includes anything that's not ours. So, of course, it includes burglary, which is breaking into a home or or building to commit theft. It includes larceny, which is taking something without permission and not returning it. It includes hijacking, using force to take goods in transit or seizing control of a vehicle. It includes shoplifting, taking items from a store during business hours without paying for them. It includes pickpocketing, which is taking someone else's valuables without them noticing, and on and on and on. These are all forms of theft. Cheating on taxes. Cheating on invoices. Fudging the numbers. Making false claims. Not claiming all your tips, 
to the government, right, servers? Stealing at work, submitting falsified hours, calling in sick, not when you're sick, but when you just want an extra day. Helping yourselves to supplies, furnishing your home with things from work, and failing to put in a productive day's work. Paid for eight hours, worked two and a half. Your social media account got five hours worth of your work that day, whatever. In all of these ways, we rob our employers. Employers rob their workers by intentionally underpaying for work done and so on. Insurance fraud happens, filing false claims, deliberately offering an unrealistic low estimate and then delivering an inflated bill that they have to pay. Theft of intellectual property like plagiarism, claiming someone else's intellectual work as your own and submitting it. Pirating music. Just downloading shows and movies, music for free. When, of course, there are easy, accessible ways to pay $5.99 or $0.99, cent, $1.29 for a song. We rationalize these little thefts. Oh, that person made $20 million making that movie. I don't need to pay for that. Have you ever seen the credits after a movie? Like names and names and names and names and names and names. Like grip number three. It's like, I don't even know what that is, but they worked on the movie and I'm sure they didn't make $20 million. Like their livelihood is involved in all of these efforts. Let's go a little more abstract here because it's, it, it's fun to make it uncomfortable for one of us. Letting go of employees and then just adding their work to the remaining employees in addition to the work they already do full-time. What about buying clothing or other products at prices inconceivably low and only possible on the backs of slave labor? Do you ever think about the unreasonably low price you're paying for stuff? Theft is involved somewhere in that process. What does our collusion mean? How do we buy diamonds in a world where we know so many are blood diamonds bought with human lives? Can I level with you? You're a thief. And so am I. Some of us have pushed the scale down. Some of us have pushed the scale up, and some of us have just run off with the poultry altogether. But we're all thieves. There's a dark and depressing story in Joshua chapters 6 and 7. It's one of, you could call it one of the problem texts of the Bible. Really difficult. To our modern ears, it sounds horrific, terrible, inconceivable. We don't know how to relate to a God who has anything to do with Joshua 6 and 7. And it's a story about a man named Achan. Achan was a part of the Israelite army that God was using to um, bring his people into the promised land by killing and driving out Canaanites, but, but really predominantly just, just killing the Canaanites. They come across a city called Jericho. And they walk around the wall seven times and they come a crashing down, tumbling down. 
They fought at that battle. Achan was one of the soldiers in that battle. Joshua says to them in Joshua 6, 18 and 19, keep yourselves, this is the instruction to the Israelites, upon the destruction of Jericho. Keep yourselves from the things devoted for destruction, lest you make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Now what, what's happening here at Jericho is this is God's battle. And God fought. God brought the walls a tumbling down. Israel was given the victory. And what God is doing at Jericho is judgment on the wickedness of the Canaanites whose iniquity, we're told in Scriptures, had become complete. Everybody has a reckoning. Everybody has a judgment day. God decided in bringing the Israelites into Canaanite land to their promised land. God said their judgment day is now. And so God brings them the victory and rids the land of Canaanites whose ways God did not want Israel to fall into. Now this is a very unique, a very harsh judgment, very unique judgment of God here. There are two distinct things about it. One, it's not to be repeated in warfare, but was a unique holy war ordained by God. There aren't others like it. And second, it anticipates this judgment of God here, the final judgment of God against all who persist in rebellion against Him and resist His grace. So God sends the Israelites, the walls come crashing down, they kill everybody, everything, and they're not to keep any of it for themselves. It is devoted to destruction, that they would not become like these pagan lands, but they are to collect the gold, the, the, the fine metals, and bring them into God's house. Now, God in His great mercy will save anyone who will turn to Him. You know who was saved from Jericho? One family, the family of Rahab the prostitute. Didn't matter what her history was, didn't matter what the sin was in her life, she feared God in the best kind of way and, and, and helped these spies, these Israelite spies that came to the city. And her whole family were spared that day. That grace is extended through the gospel to all who would turn to Jesus who faced the judgment for us. But in this circumstance, back to this, Achan and, and the, the Israelites are now overthrowing this city and the instruction is they weren't allowed to take any of the spoils of war for themselves. But as Achan walked through Jericho, the city that God had captured for them, his heart was captured by the city's treasure and took some gold, took some silver, and took a piece of clothing. I, I, I read that the kind of modern equivalent is, he didn't take a ton of stuff. He took the modern equivalent of a $500 suit, a few hundred dollars worth of silver, a few thousand dollars worth of gold. He's thinking to himself, in a whole city with all this stuff, and it's devoted to destruction, there's so much gold and silver here and it's all going to go into God's house. Nobody will notice if I take a little. Just a small amount. Just a little theft. Not only that, I'm a part of the Israelite army. I have a part in all of this. So I should get my share. 
Well, because of such a, 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 a great victory they had in Jericho, and God was clearly on their side, Joshua sends out spies to the next place, the next uh, place that they're going to conquer. And, the, and the, the spies come back and say, oh, this is easier than last. This is not going to be a problem. And so they send the army, and out they go, and they're beaten badly. And Joshua is like, where have you gone, Lord? Why have you left us? Why aren't you? What are you doing? And he falls on his face and he's crying out to God. And here's what the Lord says to Joshua in chapter 7. Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Achan had taken these things, went to his tent, and buried it underground. The next morning after Joshua hears this from God, calls the whole nation. They're brought before Joshua. And then from there, the tribe of Judah is called forward. Achan was a part of the tribe of Judah. And then from there, the descendants of Zerah were taken. As Achan's grandfather, they all moved forward. Finally, the family of Zimri was taken, Achan's dad. And finally, Joshua stands right in front of Achan. And he says, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And Achan and everything he had and his entire family were brought outside of the camp and killed. We have no concept for that, right? Like that, that, that goes against our modern sensibilities. What is God doing there? He's a God of mercy. Why isn't he being merciful even as they've broken his law? Well, one of the reasons that God dealt so harshly with Achan was to make an example of him to the people. That God is holy and calls his people to be holy. That we will not be like these transgressors. The people of Israel are to look distinct. They are to follow the covenants of God. But it was also a matter of his justice. Achan broke the eighth commandment. He broke it by stealing from Jericho but also by stealing from God. The items were designated for God's house and dedicated to God's praise. So what Achan was ultimately guilty of was robbing God of his glory. The story stands as a warning not to rob God of anything that belongs to him. Hold on to that thought, okay? The story stands as a warning not to rob God or anything that belongs to Him. We're going to come back to that. Here's the second point. The reality is, even though we're thieves, the reality is we're stewards. We've talked about this a few times where there's a negative command, you shall not steal. You shall not do this thing. There's a, there's a positive inferred. So while we're forbidden to take things that aren't ours, we're at the same time required to use what we have in ways that please God. Everything we have, we have been entrusted with by God for His glory. Do you think of your stuff like that? Everything you have, do you think of it like that? God has entrusted His things to me. The things that I could say I possessed, I don't truly possess. God possesses and is entrusting to me. Do you think of your stuff like that? 
The command isn't just about stealing, it's about stewarding. What's a steward? A steward is someone who cares for someone else's property. It's not theirs. If you're the caretaker, you look after the property of another. You don't get to have pool parties at, at the place. You're the caretaker. You're the pool boy. That's not yours. You clean the pool. You don't swim in the pool. That analogy starts to break down. Okay. A steward isn't free to use it however they want, but only manage it in accordance with the owner's intentions. That's the Christian theology of stuff right there. The idea that we are stewards of God's stuff, that it's ours and yet not ours. It's God's and yet he entrusted it to us to be at the disposal of God's people and purposes. See, enjoying God's gifts is one of the aspects of good stewardship. I never want to pass that over. We aren't supposed to hate the possessions God's given us as if they're bad things. We should praise Him for everything He's given us. And we are to enjoy um, some of the wonderful gifts that God's given us. There's nothing wrong with enjoying it. It would actually be ungrateful not to. But Christians as wealthy as we are should also be continually looking to be generous givers of what God has entrusted to us. The median household income in Chilliwack is nearly $67,000 a year. That puts us in the richest 1% of people in the world. It would take the average Indonesian worker 66 years to make $67,000 Canadian. That's the median average household income in Chilliwack. And we are stewards of what God has given to us. Followers of Jesus know what human law says I own. My goods, my money, my legal rights and titles. But all of those things I actually hold as God's trustee, as his steward. Al Mohler wrote, This biblical theology of stewardship is the most revolutionary economic theory of all. It is so radical and so revolutionary that the church hardly seems to understand it, embrace it, and live it. The prophets asked, would you rob God? And our honest answer must be, yes. Yes, we do. We rob God of the praise due His name. We rob God of the worship that is His proper expectation. We rob God of time and talent that we invest in lesser things. We rob God of possessions and money. We rob God of our priorities and our passions. He goes on to say, as God's new covenant people in Christ... We must view our wealth not so much as a sign of divine favor, but as a sign of incredible responsibility. It is not enough that we not steal. We must put all that we are and all that we have at the disposal of God, understanding that He ultimately owns all. We ultimately must be willing to give all and as Jesus said so pointedly, to lose all for the sake of the kingdom. Remember Achan? What was his great sin? He robbed God. How are we at risk of robbing God? I don't think there's a better illustration in Scripture than when Jesus told the parable of the talents about a master who was going to go on a long journey and he was entrusting his wealth to his servants. 
And to one servant he gave five talents. Now, the modern-day equivalent of a talent is hundreds of thousands of dollars, perhaps a million dollars. So when he's handing him not just a, like, a, like a gold coin, one single talent, when he's giving him five talents, it's not five pieces of gold. It's like bags, bags of wealth, millions of dollars. To so the first servant, he's giving five talents, five schmil, okay? To so the second, he's giving two talents, two schmil. To the third servant, poor guy, only one schmil, okay? And they're entrusted with their master's money. He's broken it up that way. He's given them each however he wants. It's his money. It's his wealth. He's giving it how he chooses to his three servants, five, two, and one. And then he goes off on a long journey. And, and we're told in Matthew chapter 25 that the one who, who was entrusted with five talents of the master's money, he goes off and he trades with it. He invests with it. And, and he doubles the master's money. We're told that the one with, with two talents does precisely the same thing. He goes off and he trades with it and he invests it and he doubles the master's money. Now that's not simply just putting it in the bank and letting it get a few percent of interest. That's a smart thing to do, but these servants were doing even more than that. They were leveraging the master's wealth so much that they were able to double. It's like they bought a property in Chilliwack three years ago and just boom, it doubled it, right? Like really smart really smart. And so that's what they're doing. The, the third servant, on the other hand, he doesn't buy a property in Chilliwack. He, he takes the schmill and he buries it in the ground. And then the master returns. And the first servant is pumped. Like there's excitement. Do you hear it? Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. Like this servant is excited to share what he's been doing with his master's wealth. He gave me five. Here, look, five more. The second servant brings two and says, you entrusted me with two? Look, I've made two more. And in both instances, it, doesn't, it didn't matter that five became ten and two became four. It wasn't like, oh, I really like the guy who, made, who made, turned it into ten. The master is so ecstatic with both of them, with both of them, for being faithful with what was entrusted to them. He says, well done to each of them, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The third servant comes along, and he's like, I know you're a hard man, and I was kind of scared because you're a hard man. You make me kind of nervous. So I didn't want to lose this thing. So I just like buried it in the ground. Here it is, back for you. And you think, okay, well, at least he got his money back. Listen to what the master says. You wicked and slothful servant. You wicked, lazy servant. You ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. At the very least, you could have made interest on this money. You've done nothing with what I entrusted to you. Nothing of value to who? The master. See, this story concludes this way. Take the talent, the master says, 
from him, that one talent guy, and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Achan was taken out back and stoned to death. The wicked servant was cast into a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. What did they both do? They both robbed their master. In the story, of course, Jesus is the master. We as his disciples are the servants. Are you investing your talent? I'm just not, not just talking about your bank account. I'm including that. But God has given you millions. He's given you finite. You're, you're in the richest 1% of people on the planet. He's given you time. He's given you unique talents, abilities. And He, he by, by the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit wills, has given you unique gifts that most of the rest of the room don't possess. Spiritual gifts. How are you leveraging all of those things for the cause of the gospel? Like I said, you don't just flip, you don't just, you don't just put five talents in the bank and double it. There is leveraging going on. There is risk going on. There is sold out commitment to the master and everything he's entrusted going on. Is that you? See, this parable teaches us we are stewards of God's resources and that he has entrusted each and every one of us with much. This parable also teaches us that there is work to be done and it requires risk and ingenuity. This parable also teaches us that we will be held accountable. Do you realize that one day you will give an account for how you use his resources? John Piper uh, preached a famous sermon that became a book called Don't Waste Your Life. And in it, he talked about this Reader's Digest story. He read about this couple that took early retirement, moved to Florida, bought a sailboat, and all they did with their time was sail, play softball, and collect shells. And he lamented this, because this is the American dream, by the way, but he lamented this and said, what's the person going to say when they stand before Jesus? Look, Lord, look at my shells. What are you going to say before Jesus? He's entrusted you with millions. Look, Lord, see all these Netflix series? I watch them all. Look, Lord, you made me one of the richest 1% of people in the world, and I had a house here and a house here. Never shared it with anybody. I had this wealth. I kept this wealth. I, I never let anybody cheat me, Lord. Will you be commended for the stewardship of all that God has entrusted to you on that day? 
Or will you be condemned for your theft of God's treasure entrusted to you? What are you doing with what God has entrusted to you? Your finances, your stuff, your time, your talent, your gifts. It works itself out individually and it works itself out corporately. Central, we've been entrusted with a lot. We've been entrusted with so much. And I don't know if you realize this. I certainly do because it's with fear and trembling that I recognize that we're leveraging all right now as a church. Do you know that? Like we're leveraging all. We are risking much right now. Because there is this, this sense from God that there is just this lack of satisfaction in His people here to just open up the doors on Sunday and bring the people in and talk for half an hour and then, or, or an hour or, and then just go on our way and just call that church. There has been this deep dissatisfaction with that so much so that we've said, no, we've got to matter to our community. People need to know Jesus, and we often hear, oh, Chilliwack's such a Bible belt. But listen, 20,000 souls out of 100,000? I'm sorry, I'm just not satisfied with that. Right? Are you? Oh, we live in a Bible belt. What's the point of planning new churches? What's the point of reaching new communities? There's already so many churches. Yeah, and less than a quarter of them know Jesus Christ. We're leveraging all right now. I got an update on our bank account recently. We don't need to talk about it. As a church, we're leveraging all. I keep telling our, our team and our elders keep telling us, this is a season of radical faith, radical building, where, where, we're, where we're able to plant these campuses and these other places. But these are the build, this is the building phase. Like nobody's attending and nobody's giving in Lake Iraq. And we put a lot into that in staffing and revitalizing that old building. And we're putting a lot into these transitions and trying to see churches revitalized. And it's, just, it's, it's risky. But there's just this, this deep conviction. Lord, what are we here for? We're here to leverage all for the cause of the gospel. Amen? And so that breaks itself down to this individual level of saying, will I be a part of the risk? Will I stand idly by while my church corporate goes all out risk, all out leveraging, saying, Jesus, you need to show up in powerful ways or we're going to burn this thing down. And then working itself down individually and saying, oh, I can't just stand by. I need to be a part. I need to risk. I need to leverage. I need to double the master's wealth. Like, we just think that a community just across the river called Lake Iraq, where thousands of people live and it's growing, that has no church, we just think that they should have the opportunity to come to know Jesus Christ. Like, you don't have to go across the world anymore. We're, we're going across the river and there's a community that needs Jesus. And I say, let's leverage it all. Like, let's leverage our comfort for a little bit of discomfort so that people can get saved. Two people gave their lives to Jesus at Central across our campuses last week. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. 
sharing the gospel, being the church, multiplication. These things matter. This is Jesus' model for disciple-making in the world. Would you join us, like hunker down and join us in this cause of the gospel? It works itself out individually that every one of us has to say, how am I leveraging? How am I investing my master's wealth? that he's entrusted to me simply as a steward. It is not mine. It is his to be used for his purposes. Steward the resources God has entrusted to you. Invest, risk, leverage. It's why you have what you have. And it's all his anyway. Here's the third piece. If you you know me well enough to know, I'm not going to leave you hanging here. Right? I'm not going to leave you hanging here. We're two-thirds done. There's still a final point, and we need to hear it. This changes it from law, from kind of this ugly obedience keeping that's just sort of so that I'm good with God and absolutely transforms it to, ah, it's out of the joy, it's out of the response of the gospel that I gladly follow, that I gladly pursue holiness, that I gladly strive to keep the eighth commandment, okay? So we need this part, and it's the third part. The gospel makes us generous. See, the opposite of stealing is generosity. As Christians, to obey the eighth commandment not to steal means to be people full of generosity. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, it says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. To say don't steal doesn't go far enough. From taking what is not ours, it has to move to working hard and sharing what's been given. When it says you shall not steal, the understanding is that you ought to be radically generous. Jesus transforms the Eighth Commandment by setting our hearts on the true treasure. Edmund Clowney wrote, Private property, the value of which is assumed in the commandment, keeps its meaning only as long as this earth lasts. True treasure, as Jesus shows us, can be stored up only in heaven. Jesus himself brought the treasure of heaven to us by coming to establish a lasting kingdom in which we have an inheritance. That inheritance is his very presence, for he is himself the treasure that we must value above all others. Look, I have to just confess to you. I spend so much of my time with my eyes fixed on my neighbor's stuff than having my eyes fixed on Jesus fleeting treasures, lesser treasures, when that supreme treasure is, is there for the taking, cannot be taken from us, exists for us, and we don't even lift our gaze to the treasure of treasures that will last an eternity. That is ours in Christ Jesus. Oh, how much time we spend with our eyes, our gaze fixed Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was a wee little man. A wee little man was he, and then he climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. You tell I was a product of Sunday school? He was so hated by his fellow countrymen, so hated by his fellow countrymen. Um, We often say, oh, you know, it's like the guy who works for the Canada Revenue Agency. Like, no, it's nothing like that at all. Actually, think of... um, 
Think of enemies culturally, contextually, and the tax collector was that. Um, so maybe an extremist ch- terrorist. Jesus comes along and says, hey, I'm going to go to your house for lunch. And everyone else is outraged. See, tax collectors were Jewish, and they would go and collect the tax for the Roman occupation, and the Roman occupation tax was very high, let's say 70% or so. It was like really high. And he'd come along and say, no, it's not 70, it's 85%. And he'd just take that whole extra 15% himself. And if they wouldn't give it, he had the Roman army backing him up to get it from them. So they were despised. And here he is, there's this crowd of people and Jesus is coming along and Jesus points him out and says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house. And he has a meal with him. And what happens there is that Zacchaeus has a radical encounter with Jesus. Have you had that? Have you met Jesus? Have you spent time with Jesus, had a radical encounter with Jesus where, where you, you know what your life was like before and then you encountered Jesus and everything changed? Zacchaeus had that. His life was absolutely transformed. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, the despised one. And look at what he says to Jesus. Out of joy, out of the overflow of having encountered Jesus and receiving salvation, he says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Lord, I... So this this is Zacchaeus. He's met Jesus, and now in light of meeting Jesus, he's giving half away, and if there's anyone he's ever cheated, he's giving fourfold. Man, I owe my parents so much money. He went from stealing to not just not stealing. He went from stealing to radical generosity. Why? Because he truly encountered Jesus and it just makes sense. When you've encountered Jesus, that just makes sense. It's exactly what happened during the Belfast revival in the early 1900s. A bunch of ship dock workers, shipyard workers, they, like in mass, just a, a ton of these shipyard workers got saved, and then they all started bringing back the tools and the equipment that they had jacked over like the previous years, and they had to start building extra sh- extra sheds at the at the shipyard for all of the stolen tools that were now being returned by these men who had been saved by Jesus. They're like, well, my life has to look completely different. I stole this stuff. I better bring it back. And I better be a good employee and I better work hard. Why? Because I've encountered Jesus. Everything changes. Here's the best part of the good news. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus died to save every lawbreaker who would turn to him. Jesus died and rose again to give salvation to everyone who believes in him. Remember Achan? Remember the wicked, slothful, lazy servant? Death was the outcome for them. Here's the beauty of the gospel. On the cross, Jesus stepped in and took the death that you and I deserved. The gospel tells us that Jesus was crucified between two robbers, one on his left and one on his right. Here's an example. Here's an amazing thought for breakers of the Eighth Commandment. When Jesus died on the cross... He died between two thieves. But better than that, he died for thieves. So every thief who trusts in Jesus will be saved. The first to be saved was the thief hanging next to him who said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus' response to the thief that hung beside him is precisely the same response to every one of us who would say, Jesus, 
would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Jesus' response to that thief is the same response that he gives you. You will be with me in paradise. That gospel, that salvation, that Jesus died in the place of a thief and died to save thieves, that salvation makes us generous. And look, it's all his anyways, right? What do you say we double the master's money? Let's pray. Jesus, oh, we love you so much. Because you died for us. You died to save us. You stepped in, Jesus, to make us right where we have so wronged. We are eight commandments in, and here's what we've learned so far. We've broken them all. But Jesus, you kept them perfectly. Oh, your grace is so amazing. As you hung on the cross, you saved a thief. That gives us hope here this morning. You saved thieves. And we are all that. Lord, we repent, we confess. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, not only forgive us of our theft, Lord, we pray that you would make us a radically generous people in light of your radical generosity towards us in the gospel. Lord, we long to see others come to know you. Oh, help us be a people that leverage all for the cause of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.